privilege of, of launching a new series, which will take quite a while. It will be a series in the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, the sort of title for the series is going to be Messy Grace. It's up there. Messy Grace. And, and I'm sure you'll see why things are pretty messy in this church. Um, and hopefully there will be some lessons for us. Um, just a bit on, on Corinth. So Corinthians were those who were living in Corinth in what is modern-day Greece. Um, it was quite an affluent commercial center. Uh, they were a very diverse and progressive culture, really valuing uh, philosophy and wisdom, as did most of the Greeks at that time. There were many pagan religions uh, going on at the time. Uh, there were some Jews living there, but it was mostly a non-Jewish or Gentile community. Um, and what we're going to see today is how Paul, Apostle Paul, arrives in Corinth and preaches the gospel and starts a church there. And then in the book of 1 Corinthians, we've got this letter from Paul to the church after they've been going for a little while uh, and after things have become pretty messy. Um, and, and so today, we're actually not going to be in the book of 1 Corinthians. We'll, we'll jump in and out of it a little bit, but today we're actually going to be in the book of Acts, um, which uh, we will see the historical account of the launching of this church in Corinth. So it'll give us good background and insight in, when we read the letter to know where it comes from, what is the context for this letter, um, how did this church start, what kind of a church was it. Um, just a bit on the, on, on the book of Acts. The, the point of, of the book of Acts, in a way, for me, is to link uh, what Jesus did, his life and work, with where we are today and what we must do. I think if, if Jesus had just lived and taught some stuff and done, and done some miracles and then uh, died and gone to heaven, we might have been wondering a little bit, like, what do we do now in the light of that? Um, we might have felt that it's okay to have kind of a private faith, where we just privately believe in the things Jesus taught and did. But we wouldn't know sort of what, it, wouldn't know about church. Like, what, what do we do as a church? What is our mission in the world now? And Acts really lays that out. It starts with a, with a commission uh, to go into all the world uh, and to, to make disciples of people from every nation. And then we see the early historical fulfillment of that mission in Acts. Uh, so today we're going to see specifically as the gospel reaches the city of Corinth and launches, launches this church, with, which we're going to get to know quite well in the next few months. Uh, so let's read together um, from, from Acts uh, chapter 18. Um, do turn with me in your, in your Bibles there. Um, chapter 18, we're going to read from verse 1 all the way to verse 18. It will also be up behind me. Okay, so we're going to read Acts chapter 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. 
Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. Let's just pray and, and ask God to help us as we unpack this, this text. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you use all of it to speak to us. Uh, and we pray today that you would continue to speak to us. Lord, Holy Spirit, would you work in our hearts? Would you help us to understand what your word says? Would you challenge us? Help us to reflect deeply, Lord, on, on the way we live our lives, um, the way we do church, uh, and, and help us to, to leave here today changed. Uh, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we've said the title for the series is Messy Grace, and uh, a similar title is what I have for today's talk. I'm going to call it Real Church. Okay, now arguably uh, that could be kind of the the title of the series as a whole, Messy Grace, Real Church. Um, We'll see that they had very real issues, Um, and you know, in some ways that's not surprising. If any of you have spent much time in any church, or if if you've been to various churches in your life, uh, you'll, you'll probably agree that there isn't really such a thing as a perfect church. Um, so the fact that Corinthians was far from perfect is in a way encouraging to us because uh, it means we might still be believing in, in something true um, and we just have real issues that, that God has answers to in the scripture as well. Um, so real church is, is the title. The first kind of obvious way in which I want to point out that, that this church in Corinth is real is that what we read here in Acts is, is real historical events. Uh, it's kind of a simple and obvious thing to say, but I think sometimes we lose sight of it in terms of what we actually believe, that these things actually happened. Um, the writer of, Luke, of, Paul, of Acts is Luke. All right? The writer of Acts is Luke. He also is the same Luke who wrote the book of Luke. Uh, he was a very detailed historian, and I think both he and God, who inspired the Scripture, want us to really know that these things happened uh, historically, they really happened, and so details are important to assure us of the truth and authenticity of the things that happened. Um, the gospel is not just an abstract idea; it's not just kind of a set of teachings um, or something that got revealed to an individual prophet at one point in time as a kind of a way of doing life, a way of believing. Uh, it's rooted in things that actually happened in this world. Uh, most importantly, that Jesus Himself was actually a man; He did live in in the world. He did certain things. He died, and importantly, he rose again from the dead. Those are historical facts which we have to believe. And it's the same about the early church. Um, For me, the battle of faith is is partly about believing things about God. It's partly about sort of 
Do I really believe that God is good? Do I really believe that God will provide? Do I really believe he loves me? Those are battles. But for me, at some level, the battle is just believing that it's all real. There are times where it's like, is this whole thing not real? And, and so I think it's important to ground ourselves in, in the historical reality of what we're reading about as an assurance that what we believe is, is rooted in, in, in something that is historically real. Um, so notice in the, in the text uh, with me a few real places, real people, real specific details that, that Luke decides to mention and include. Um, we have real places. So Paul leaving Athens. Athens, by the way, is uh, not the capital of Paris, as I was once told, playing 30 seconds. Um, uh, it is actually the capital of modern-day Greece. So it's a real place. Um, they then, Paul then comes from Athens. He arrives in Corinth, another real place. Um, Aquila was a native of a place called Pontus. Um, they had recently come from Italy, a real place with great food. Um, the Jews had been ordered to leave Rome. Um, Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia. These are all real places that we know about. Uh, all the details are in the story. None of them are left out. But then we see real people, obviously Paul, Aquila, who was married to Priscilla. Um, we see the Emperor Claudius, a historical figure that we know about through history. Uh, we see uh, also quite a prominent person called Titius Justus. We see Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, who, by the way, may also have been called Sosthenes, because in the same text, there's the ruler of the synagogue is called Crispus in one place and Sosthenes in another. Um, we see Gallio, the proconsul of Achaia. This is like a judicial leader, uh, possibly like the chief justice, like our, our equivalent of Mohueng Mohueng, perhaps. Um, and uh, so these are historical uh, people that lived uh, and occupied specific roles in, in society. There are a number of other little specific details, the fact that Paul moved to the house next door to the synagogue, the fact that he stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, and at the end of the passage, we see Paul go and get a haircut. Okay, so, so specific details, which you might have left out if, you, if it didn't actually happen. Okay, so if you were making up a religion, you might not have included those details, but they're there because they actually happened. And that should assure us uh, that this is, this is real, what we're reading about. But, but actually, there's two main senses which I'm going to talk about in real church today. Um, the, two, the two things we're going to talk about is, firstly, real or authentic ministry that we see happen in this passage. We see Paul give us uh, an example of real, authentic ministry. We're going to look for marks of what is real, authentic gospel ministry. And then towards the end, more as a preview for the series in 1 Corinthians, we're going to talk about a few ways in which they were a real or messy church, um, just to give you a flavor for some of the stuff that was going on there. Cool. So let's start by looking then at some of the marks of real, authentic gospel ministry. And the first mark that I want us to see in the text is that real, authentic ministry is obedient to the commission of Jesus. So... You'll remember if you were here about a year ago, we did a, a few, we did a small series in the book of Acts, and we saw how Acts starts with this commission, this mandate, uh, where Jesus, before he ascends, says, um, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And it's a very similar kind of commission to the great commission we've, we've seen in Matthew 28, uh, where Jesus again says, go and make disciples of all peoples. Um, this is the mission that he leaves with the church as he, as he ascends into heaven. Um, and we see in this, in this text um, the historical fulfillment of that. I mean, the book of Acts kind of traces the fulfillment of going to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. It starts in Jerusalem. 
then we see some, some chapters in Judea. Then we see some, some, some missionary trips in Samaria. And by now, by the time we enact 18, we're going to the ends of the earth, uh, which includes Greece and, and Corinth. Um, so, so we see that, that Paul is being fu- fulfilling the mandate that he's given. Have a look at, at verses 4 to 8 in Acts with me. Um, what we see in these verses is we'll see Paul in verse 4, reasoning and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Uh, we'll see later in, in verse 8 that we'll, we'll see there that he kind of ends up almost moving away from the Jews because they reject the message, or, or many of them reject the message. He goes to the Gentiles, uh, and uh, he ends up with seeing many Corinthians believing in the end. So we see that this mandate is being fulfilled. Authentic gospel ministry goes to the ends of the earth. It, it, it reaches all peoples. And so I guess the lesson for us is to encourage us in trying to reach all people with this gospel. We're doing something here that is simply a continuation of the, the mandate that we were given right 2,000 years ago as Jesus left. Um, we're doing it in our context, reaching all people here. And obviously we talk a lot at Rooted about being transcultural. Uh, and I think we must continue to to um, challenge ourselves to think about what that means, um, different ways and dimensions in, in which that, what, and how that looks. Um, it does mean reaching people who don't look like us, but it means also reaching people who don't think like us, um, who, who, don't, who, who, who we might not easily get on well with or we have very different views to. Uh, I think it gets harder when, when those things actually get going on. But, so let's, let's keep trying to do what is actually authentic gospel ministry uh, in the way uh, we, we try and preach the gospel to people here in Pretoria. Okay, so that was the first uh, mark of authentic ministry. The second one that I want us to notice about what Paul does here is real ministry preaches Christ and him crucified. Um, have a look at verse 4 and 5 with me. So we'll see here how Paul is trying to persuade Jews and Greeks that the Christ was Jesus. Now, this idea of persuading people, is, I think it's quite controversial, actually. Um, I'm sure you've encountered a lot of thinking which would say, you know, it, it's fine to believe what you believe, but don't try and convert other people or force other people to believe what you believe. Uh, but actually, real gospel ministry involves persuading. Um, sure, our behavior, our actions are going to kind of validify whether our message is authentic, and it's going to be a kind of confirmation of, of what we're preaching, but it can't end at just setting a good example and being good people. It, it does involve persuading people and persuading people specifically about Jesus Christ. All right, there's many things we could try and persuade people of, but it's, it's got to be persuading people of, about Jesus Christ. And have a look with me in 1 Corinthians, where Paul, actually in the letter, part of the preview here, uh, discusses this. He reflects on how when he was with them in Corinth, which is what we're reading by an act, he reflects on his strategy and what his message was. And he says to them, he says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. For me, that's a very challenging message um, that he almost restricted his message. He, he knew a lot of things. Paul, Paul clearly is using a figure of speech here when he says he knew nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul was a very learned rabbi, so he really understood his Jewish religion. He'd also received incredible revelation from God. Um, 
And he had insight into the mysteries of what God was doing in the world beyond what many people have. And yet he says here that when I was with you, I decided to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Um, In a way, I think this is encouraging. It means we don't need to have lofty speech and wisdom before we share the gospel. Uh, You don't need to be able to take down evolution before you can share the gospel with someone. You don't need to be able to perfectly explain how a good God can allow suffering in the world. Those are important questions to think about, but nothing should stop you sharing about your experience of knowing Jesus and pointing people to Jesus. Um, God will do the work. There's something powerful simply in proclaiming this. The Holy Spirit works as the gospel is proclaimed. And so simply proclaiming, just pointing to Jesus, even in the most simple way, God does miracles through that uh, in ways that are clearly then him at work, not us being clever in the way we present the gospel. Um, but I think there's another lesson in this. There's, there's a kind of a prioritization lesson in this where Paul kind of keeps the main thing the main thing. I think it was Stephen Covey, you might know him, he wrote that Seven Habits of Effective Living book. I think he said um, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Um, and I think in many areas in life that probably applies in how we, we try and sort of do too much and then end up not doing the central thing as well as we could. And I think in some ways there's a, there's a lesson around prioritization here uh, in, in keeping the essential message of the gospel um, the thing that we hammer on the hardest and we, and we, we really spend our time on. Um, it's, it's a simple message. Jesus Christ and him crucified. What that means is basically our biggest need as humans is to be reconciled to God. Um, the Bible teaches us that we all have a problem of sin, how our rebellion against God has kind of rightfully incurred God's anger. Uh, and, and a punishment is due for that sin before we can be reconciled to God. Uh, but Jesus Christ came into the world, lived a perfect life, died a pleasing death, and rose again to conquer sin and death. Um, that is the gospel. That is what we believe in. That is what will reconcile us to the Father. And so that is the message that everyone else needs to hear before they hear many other messages we may have for them. Um, and so... It, it's, it's, a good, it's a question to ask. What is the thing that sort of most excites you, that most energizes you, that you most want to share? You know, it could be, could be about your sports team or it could be a number of things in life that we actually find ourselves very passionate about talking about. But this should actually be the first thing that we're passionate about sharing. It is challenging for me as well. I have to admit I, I, I do a lot of things and I'm passionate about a lot of things at work and in various aspects of life and I... Reflecting on this for myself, I'm not sure that I, that I really am I'm, I'm sort of mindful of wanting to share this message as much as I should. Um, of, course, of course, the gospel has many implications. It has far-reaching implications. It, it affects every area of our lives. Our lives can't look the same um, once we believe this. Um, so I'm not saying we shouldn't talk about those implications, um, but nonetheless, I think there is a sort of a, uh, as I say, a prioritization lesson here where this needs to stay the central thing. Um, and so hold us at rooted accountable to this. I, I hope that even as, as we're about two years old, we can say that this is what we've, we could almost say, I've decided, we've decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. And I hope that in five or ten years' time, we can still say that and that we've preached this message primarily uh, above all else. All right, so, so let's look then at the third mark of authentic gospel ministry. Real authentic ministry 
um, puts the gospel and its recipients ahead of our own needs or preferences. Uh, it, it links to the previous point in that we might want to preach other things first, but, uh, but we need to preach what people need to hear. Authentic ministry puts the gospel and its recipients ahead of our own needs or preferences. Um, of course, the gospel is about God's glory, but it's really about those who need to hear the gospel. Um, and we see this in Acts 18 and Acts 17. Actually, taken together, those two chapters uh, provide a picture of Paul using different strategies to persuade different people about the gospel. Um, in Acts 17, we see him in Berea, for example, and he speaks to a group of people who accept the authority of the Old Testament scriptures. And so with them, he reasons with them from the scriptures that Jesus is actually the answer to God's prophecies and, and the promises of a, of a Messiah and a Christ who would come. He then goes to Athens and he uses a completely different method. There, he, he encounters people who don't accept scripture as, as an authority. Um, and there he, he uses things that they believe in. He, he finds an inscription to an unknown God, and he starts to share through that who the real God is and how he's revealed himself. And he argues from creation and, and has a completely different approach because the audience is different. And now we see him arrive in Corinth, and here he realizes that he doesn't want to be a financial burden to anyone. So he realizes he has to earn his keep through joining those in, in his trade, which is tent making or, or leather working. Um, and so he works hard, um, making sure he's not a burden on anyone. Again, uh, well, firstly, it's, it's an effective strategy because he, he, um, he develops great relationships with people in the marketplace. He really builds a solid relationship with Aquila and Priscilla, who turn out to be really valuable in, in the gospel ministry. They end up joining Paul on, on missionary journeys. They end up training Apollos, who turns out to be someone who, who, who also teaches the gospel. Um, so meeting people in the workplace can end up being a very uh, effective gospel strategy. Um, but his main concern here is he doesn't want to put any obstacle in front of them to believing the gospel. He doesn't want anyone to accuse him of wrong motives, of, of trying to come here to sell them some message um, for financial gain. And I think we all know the sensitivities around that uh, in church, in, in our context. Um, and so have a look again at 1 Corinthians, how Paul reflects on that strategy. Um, so in the letter, again a preview, chapter 9, uh, he says to them, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? So he's saying if, we, if we've brought the gospel to you, we could have asked for material compensation. But he says, um, even though we, if others share this right claim on you, do we not even more share it? Nevertheless, he says, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So Paul is more concerned that there's no obstacle for them hearing the gospel than he is about meeting his own financial or material needs. Um, and, and read a bit further in, in 1 Corinthians 9, I find these words really powerful, where Paul again explains his strategy of adapting to whoever it is that is hearing the gospel. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. 
I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. That's his strategy, to become all things to all people so that he might win them for the gospel. And I think, for me, the challenge then is in what ways do we put our needs, our preferences, ahead of thinking about what do people need to hear and, and, and what is their perspective on this? Um, are there any ways in which we kind of put obstacles in front of people hearing and accepting the gospel? Um, it's probably a question that needs a lot, a lot more reflection, and maybe in our city groups we can reflect on it. Um, are there times where uh, we maybe plan financially exclusive events? Um, not just as, as the church, but just informally amongst ourselves, do we, do we sometimes do that? Um, do we sometimes exclude people in our conversations through insider uh, jokes or things like that? Even on a, on a Sunday, I think now as we're getting a little bit bigger, it becomes harder to see everyone. And so you might be keen to see the person that you're friends with that you haven't seen for a while and have that catch-up. Um, one might need to put that aside to, to speak to people who might be visiting and, and to build a relationship there um, that might have, have real gospel value. Um, it's a difficult thing to sort of think about when, when is something my preference in the way we do things at church uh, versus when do I have like a legitimate concern with something. So what I'm not saying is that if there's ever anything you don't like here at Rooted, just get over it. It's just your preference thing. Don't let it stand in the way of the gospel. I'm not saying that. I think there's, there's hard work to do, though. We have to really check our hearts. When is something like the way I want to do it and the way I'm comfortable and what meets my needs but not a gospel issue? And when is something actually really important to raise? Uh, and, and you may have valid things. We're certainly not a perfect church. So, so there will be times where it will be great for you to, to speak your mind um, and do so in a way that really promotes unity. I think we'll see in the book of Corinthians as well um, a big need and, a, and Paul imploring them to fight for unity in the way they do things. Um, before we move on to the next point, it's just interesting to note that uh, Paul is actually able to tra- change his strategy. When he's in Corinth, he starts off working, making tents. But as soon as Silas and Timothy arise, arrive from Macedonia, he is able to devote himself exclusively to preaching the gospel. Um, and it doesn't actually say it in the text here, but in 2 Corinthians, we kind of get some insight into what happened here because we, we read how the Macedonians uh, had given uh, Silas and Timothy, uh, a financial gift which they brought to Paul in Corinth. Um, and that then freed him up to preach the gospel exclusively. Um, and, and so what we see is actually the Macedonians having a hand in the gospel here, them laying aside their needs. Paul actually in 2 Corinthians says that they gave generously in a context of extreme poverty. That, that's actually really hectic. They were in extreme poverty, but they gave generously so that those in Corinth, which is actually a fairly affluent city, could hear the gospel. Um, and, and so again, what we see here is the gospel flourishing because people are willing to put aside their own needs, their own preferences, uh, so that people can hear the word. Cool, let's look at the fourth um, mark that we see uh, in, in, in this passage, mark of authentic ministry. And what we see is that when authentic ministry is happening, God is the one who empowers and protects that ministry. Okay, God, we see God himself at work to protect and empower the ministry. Um, we saw in, in Acts how the, along with the mandate to preach the gospel came the assurance that, that God is with, with him. Um, in the Great Commission, Jesus says, Behold, I am with you, even to the end of the age. Um, and, uh, but in this passage, we see God's hand. 
we see him sovereignly at work um, in all the circumstances and, and with the people and with the secular authorities to promote, to protect the gospel message. Uh, so, ha- so have a look what happens in, in this text. What, what, what is the story we just read about? Um, at the very start, we already see some opposition to the gospel through the emperor Claudius, uh, where people were scattered from Rome. Um, they, had, they were chased out of Rome. Um, and, uh, and, and that's why Priscilla and Aquila ended up here in Corinth. We, we see in verse 6 how the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive towards him, um, forcing him to leave the synagogue. Uh, we then see in verse 12 how the Jews made a united attack on Paul and they took him to court. So now they're using legal means. So there's some real opposition to the gospel, as was the case throughout Acts. Uh, but how is God at work in the midst of that to protect the gospel? Firstly, I think this the scattering of Christians turned out to be something that God really used for the gospel because it meant that Christians became scattered to the ends of the earth um, and were able to help spread the gospel. Um, We see how rejection by the Jews led to Paul turning to the Gentiles and the gospel bearing a lot of fruits amongst the Gentiles. Um, We see how when Paul is forced out of the synagogue, he ends up moving next door, and that becomes a great base for ministry. We see uh, that actually from being out of the synagogue, next door to the synagogue, the ruler of the synagogue himself comes to faith uh, and his whole household with him. Um, but the, probably the, the sort of point of climax in the passage is this vision Paul gets, where God speaks to Paul in a vision. Uh, have a look with me at, at what God says in that vision. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. And do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Uh, it's always useful to have people in high places. I'm sure you'd agree. Um, a couple of knowing laughs. Um, if you need something at home affairs, it's always good to have a guy in home affairs. Um, maybe in your work context, it can be very valuable to have someone in HR who can help you do things. Um, so, so God has people. Uh, and what's interesting is that his people are, are Christians who, who partner with the gospel, who do things like give Paul a place to stay. But it's, it's even the secular authorities that God is sovereignly in control of. Um, and he uses them in interesting ways to protect the gospel. So what happens when the Jews take Paul to the court? So the Jews now have this religious battle and they go to the courts. Okay? And uh, what happens is that Galileo, who's the proconsul, the kind of chief justice at the time, um, he basically throws it out of court. He says, no, this is, this is a matter of, of religious freedom. This is a religious discussion you're having. I'm not going to judge and take sides uh, on this religious argument that you're having. And so in that sense, he actually promotes religious freedom. Um, in a way, it's an application for, for the state or for the judiciary here. Um, but, uh, but I think there's a great example here of how the state can actually protect religious freedom. Um, there's also a bad example in the, same, in the same text where after he throws them out of court, the Jews then they turn on Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him for not dealing with Paul. Um, and, and we see that Galileo, the, pro, the proconsul, sees it but does nothing about that. So in that sense, he's passive and doesn't protect, uh, protect uh, people's rights. Um, so there's a good and a bad example, but the big point is that God is sovereign in control here. God is using uh, both Christians in the city and secular authorities and structures and institutions in place. He's in control over it all uh, because his gospel is something which he will have spread no matter what. Um, 
Okay, so let, let's just recap the, the, four, the four marks of authentic ministry then that we've seen. Uh, we've seen real authentic ministry is obedient to the commission of Jesus to go to all nations with the gospel. Real authentic ministry preaches Christ and Him crucified. Real authentic ministry puts the gospel and its recipients ahead of our own needs or preferences. And God is the one who empowers and protects real gospel ministry. Now, as, as a preview for, for where we're going in 1 Corinthians, let's just look, just to give you a sense of, of some of the ways in which this was a real or messy church. Um, the first thing about this church that we see is there was real sin. Okay, real sin that they were dealing with, or in some cases not dealing with. Um, perhaps like us. Um, and uh, part of this real sin that they had is, part of the context is the city in which they lived had a bad reputation. So they were surrounded by but a whole lot of sin and things going on. It's, uh, it reminds me of Amsterdam and its red light district and how we kind of know them for that. It's kind of notorious for a kind of a, a very licentious way of, of living. Uh, in Corinth, one of the big things there was the worship of this goddess Aphrodite. And in her temple, at any one time, there were roughly a thousand priestesses who were serving in the temple. Um, the only thing about these priestesses is that their ministry was really prostitution. Um, and so it was a horrendous kind of pagan religion mix that was going on there and influenced the culture. Um, to the extent that um, to Corinthianize was like a way of saying to, in those days, uh, to engage in, shall we say, sexual immorality. It was to Corinthianize. Um, and what we see sadly in the letter to 1 Corinthians is that the church weren't setting a much better example in this area. Um, have a look at, at 1 Corinthians chapter 5 to see an example of some of the stuff going on in the church, Paul says to them, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Okay, I'm sure you'd agree that even in the world, that is regarded as, as, a, as bad, all right, as not acceptable. Um, and I don't think this is an isolated incident, just reading, reading through Corinthians. Um, it happened. It's also an issue because they didn't deal with it properly. Um, but I think there, were, there was broader ways in which, in this area, the church was getting it wrong. And there was temptations to want to... People were wondering, like, can they sort of still engage to some extent? Can they be Christian and engage in the worship of Aphrodite and the stuff that goes on there? There were those kinds of questions going on. Um, so we'll see real sin, and hopefully we'll be challenged ourselves in that area. Then we see that there were real conflicts and real divisions going on in this church. Um, when Paul wrote the letter, part of the context was that he'd received reports from them. He'd heard, and he writes to them saying, you know, it has been reported to me that by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you brothers uh, early on. And then we see uh, about, about what that quarreling is about. To a large extent, it's also about spiritual competition. They, they were a very blessed church in many ways, and there was a lot of spiritual gifts and things going on. Um, but it started to cause division. It started to be a case of one-upmanship. Who's better? Uh, whose ministry is more, more spiritual and more powerful? Um, we see quite a bit in, in, the, in the book around the gift of tongues. Now, I'm not going to get into detail about what that is, but basically it's, it's a supernatural gift from God around speaking in languages you don't understand, praying in tongues, speaking in tongues. It's a good gift from God. But here we see in Corinthians it being used wrongly. It actually causing division and kind of the spiritual competition where I, these guys pray in tongues and those guys don't, and what does that mean? Are they, you know? 
And so Paul spends quite a bit of time addressing that issue in, say, in chapters 12 to 14, as we'll see. Uh, another example of the conflicts is that we see they were having lawsuits with each other. So people in the same church were taking each other to court to solve their problems. And, and Paul says that it's not going to do. We have to have unity in the gospel. Okay, then a third thing we see, a third real issue, is they had real questions. Okay, now this isn't necessarily a bad thing, but as you, as you go as a church, you're going to encounter issues, and you're going to have real questions, tricky questions. Some of the questions they had. Um, well, firstly, Paul, Paul starts, as, as I said, part of the context was Paul had received these reports of what was going on in Corinth. But another part of the context was that he'd received a letter from the church asking a bunch of questions. Uh, and so in chapter 7, he starts by saying, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, and he deals with some of the tricky questions that asked. Um, questions like, is it better to stay single or get married? And if so, when? Um, what if your spouse dies? Are you free to marry someone else? Um, what if you're married to an unbeliever? Should you stay married? Um, uh, questions like, is it okay to eat food if it's been sacrificed to idols? Um, tricky questions, which I think we'll find have a lot of relevance to us today. Um, and to a large extent, I think their questions arose from this, this battle to figure out what does it mean now to be Christian, to turn away from the old way of life. What of the old way of life and the thinking that we see in Corinth and in their culture, what of that can they still, still keep and what of that do they have to turn away from? Um, and hopefully it'll challenge us as well to say, well, in our culture, what are the things that are acceptable or even ethical, things that our culture would say is ethical, but actually that is incompatible with our new life in Christ? What are those things? Um, the last thing we see here I want to highlight as a real thing is more on a positive note that they had real blessings and gifts. Um, they were a talented bunch of individuals displaying miraculous gifts that God had given them. Um, a lot of good work was going on. And so I think, again, it's, it's similar to us. I think just in, in the room today, there, there's a lot of talented people with a lot of opportunities here in Pretoria. Um, but I think with this comes a real need for humility. Uh, there comes a need for working hard with each other, protecting our unity, um, holding on to the essence of what we believe, not getting distracted by other things. Um, right, so in conclusion... I want to encourage us to do real, authentic gospel ministry, um, whether at work, in our, in our family, amongst our friends, here at Rooted. Let's make sure we're doing those things which, which authentic gospel ministry looks like. Let's be obedient to the, the commission to reach all peoples. Let's prioritize Christ and the message that he died for us to save us from our sins. Uh, let's put aside our own needs and preferences and make sure that the, the primary thing is for other people to hear the gospel. Uh, and let's be encouraged that God is with us. He's at work in this. Let's not be silent. Let's keep on speaking. Let's keep on doing it, knowing that God is in control, and he has many people even here in Pretoria. Um, and I'm sure as we do this, increasingly and already, we'll grow up into a real church with real issues and real questions. And so come back next week to start to grapple with some of those and get our hands dirty. Um, let's pray together. Father God, we want to thank you that you have given us this letter uh, from Paul to the Corinthians, and thank you that it has relevance for us, Lord. And I pray that you'd help us in the weeks to come to, to really grapple with it, to really reflect on our own lives, and to try and draw the links to, to what are you saying to us. Um, I pray, Lord, that you'd, you'd protect uh, and empower the work of the gospel ministry here at Rooted um, as we reach people with the message that Jesus Christ is real and that he died for us 
and he offers us uh, life that is really life. Help us, Lord, to be faithful in how we do that um, in the ways we've seen today exemplified by Paul. And we pray these things in in your name and, and for your glory. Amen.